Hey, before we get started, I just wanted to say, on the website, nitrateville.com, we have our annual holiday wish list drawing, sponsored by Flickr Alley. You post what you're hoping for this holiday season by December 12th, and it automatically enters you for a drawing to win one of three releases from Flickr Alley. It's a great way to find out about cool things other people are hoping for, so check it out on the website. And if you haven't registered at Nitrateville before, it's a good reason to do that. Now on with the show. I wanted also to go against the grain of that stupid uh, idea that Hollywood was the, the doom of every writer on earth. You know, I mean, yeah, only a, only a small fraction of people suffered. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Another year has passed, and Blu-rays and DVDs still aren't dead. Nitrateville moderator Bruce Calvert and I look at the best in movies you can hold in your hand, with 2020's Top 10 in Physical Media. And America loves old Hollywood screenwriters, or so Netflix's Mank hopes. Well, get your fill of them as I talk to Philippe Garnier, who interviewed many of the legendary names below the title in the 70s and 80s. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio, and if you can, leave us a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts. Nitrateville Radio, where the white wine always comes up with the fish. Hello, Bruce. Hi, Michael. Happy holidays to you. I'm happy holidays to you, and thanks for inviting me back this year. Happy to do it. So, uh, watched a few movies this year? I have watched more movies this year and streamed more TV episodes than any other year. Yeah, that's how I feel, too. It's just been, it's been a movie year. Movies and cooking, that's all I've done this year. Have you been to a movie since the lockdown started? No, I was tempted by Tenet at my beloved Music Box Theater a few blocks away, Mm -hmm. and I just never did it. I think I was a little anxious about it even so. So yeah, the last thing I saw was 1917 back in like January or February sometime there. I've actually been twice to a movie theater. Uh, Two or three weeks ago, we went to go see Let Him Go, the new uh, Kevin Costner one, and there were eight people in the theater, including us. And then a couple months ago, we have a film group here in Dallas, and we rented out a theater and um, just to, to watch an older movie, and it, oh, it was uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And we're doing it again next week to see White Christmas. Nice. Yeah, I was going to ask you, your, your uh, Dallas old movie group, what did you, uh, have you gotten together, I guess, that one time? Is that it? Just, o- just only then. No, we haven't. Well, we actually have done some streaming shows where Jim Reed, 
who has the biggest movie collection on film will stream something and we'll get together in a Zoom conference and talk before that. We do that at least once a month. Nice, nice. Yeah, a year of finding other ways to see movies. Uh, you know, streaming has been a big part of it, but people, you know, it's not just Netflix and Amazon and so on. People have shown movies over the internet. I've been to two film festivals this year. I went to Pordenone, sitting on my couch, and I just watched the last of three films in the uh, Noir City Festival that I watched, uh, also from my living room. Yes, and I've watched a lot of Ben Modell and Steve Massa's weekly silent comedy shows are a must every Sunday afternoon. And the best thing about them is they're all still up on YouTube. So you can catch them anytime if you've missed them. Or if this week is something you've already seen, you can go catch an older show. Yeah, that's, I, I like that because it kind of takes me back to one of the first ways that I discovered silent films was just seeing silent comedies on the wall of a pizza parlor. It was that very sort of casual... They just happen to be showing something. You catch it, and and uh, I think for a lot of us that was that kind of thing was the introduction to loving all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Even though I have streamed so many things, it has been a good year for physical media. I think I've probably piled up physical media, by which I mean Blu-rays. You know, more this year than any time before. Just so many things came out this year. And what I think is remarkable, too, is there's always been companies like Milestone, Kino, Flickr Alley, Grapevine, and the Warner Archive that have put stuff out. But there's so many other companies now, like Sprocket Vault, um, the Sabu Cat, who put out the the Laurel and Hardy one, Um, of course, Ben Modell's Kickstarter, and Bob Fermanek's Kickstarter on Africa Screams. I mean, this movie is not nearly the best of the the Abbott and Costello movies, and it's it's got like a criterion treatment. Yeah. (laughs) There's so much stuff on this disc. Yeah, one that I found this year uh, is a label called Film Movement that I guess is uh, licensed some old rank films that Studio Canal owns now, or some damn thing. Anyway, uh... I got this thing called Their Finest Hour that was like five British uh, British World War II films. And, I mean, beautiful prints, a lot of interesting uh, extras on them, and that's just normal now. Uh, they, you know, people do that. They also put out a couple of uh, Ealing comedies. I picked those up. Mm-hmm. I have no idea who these guys are, but God bless them. They're putting stuff out. It's great. There is one thing, though, that, I mean, we are close to Festivus, so... There is one grievance that I want to air. Are you ready? Yes. You, you can take it? Okay. Yes. Um, it is, there was an article in the New York Times, and I think in August, and it was talking about Criterion and about African-American filmmakers. And it was saying, why hasn't Criterion, you know, put out like Killer of Sheep, which is the great African-American independent film of the 70s by Charles Burnett? Why isn't that in the Criterion collection? Why haven't they put out like a whole set of like low budget independent African-American films from the 20s, 30s and 40s? You know, things like Spencer Williams, The Blood of Jesus and Oscar Michaud films and stuff like that. Well, the reason they haven't done that is because somebody else already did. Milestone put out uh, a beautiful three-disc set of Killer of Sheep. Uh, Kino put out 
Pioneers of African American Cinema, which has dozens of these super low budget, uh, you know, what were called race films back in the day. I mean, nothing against Criterion. They do beautiful work. They certainly have the best art direction for the boxes. They look very pretty on the shelf. But they're not the only game in town. I mean, Kino in particular has just been on a tear this year. They have uh, licensed so many things from studios. They have deals with like the the Murnau Foundation for German mm-hmm. silent and sound films. Uh, we'll get to some of those later. They've licensed all these uh, restorations of silence that Universal has done. They've done that whole exploitation series. Brett Wood was on the podcast to talk about that. They did the Yiddish cinema one that we just talked about. I mean, it just goes on and on. In addition to just like regular studio movies. I mean, I love picking up this year A Thousand Clowns with Jason Robards, which is one of my favorite movies and it has not been available in a good copy before. But now there's a Blu-ray from Kino. And there's just dozens and dozens of films like that as my as my groaning shelves will attest. Back when you and I were much younger and we were in college, the official canon that we saw, usually on 16mm in our classes, or at home was stuff like Chaplin, Keaton, and D.W. Griffith. And it's because nothing else was available, that's what we accepted. They were the, the only geniuses at the time of the silent era and the early sound era. But now that these companies have released so many more movies, we can see all kinds of things that people just forgot about, or maybe they weren't that popular, like the, you know, the, uh, the pre-code Babyface with Barbara Stanwyck didn't make much of a ripple when it came out in the early 30s. But now when you watch it, you're going, oh, my God, (laughs) I can't believe they made this movie so long ago. And it's unbelievable. But it's just because we kind of have tunnel vision, I guess. And we still do. If if you just watch the Criterion channel on streaming or you just want to collect Criterion films, they aren't the arbiter of what the best is. Now, they try to do their best. And they try to pick as many, but Criterion, other than the Janus films, they don't own the rights to any of the films that they release. And so they have to pay money for them. In fact, all of these distributors, except for the Warner Archive and Disney, have to pay for the rights to release films, the classic films that they release on disc or for streaming. Right, but you look at how much stuff Kino is putting out, and you know that they've figured out how to make it so it pays off for everybody. And the studios trust them with these titles because they know how they'll be treated um, they'll be put out at a reasonable price but a nice addition usually a commentary track uh, sometimes i mean like one of the kino films we're going to talk about a silent it has three different tracks on it plus mm-hmm. it has an, a, a different cut of the film from earlier right. u.s releases with a fourth track on it so you know you, mm-hmm. you literally have four possible musical choices for this one movie so yeah i mean it's just so so many good things coming out. We live in the best possible time for that, if for very little else at the moment. Uh, we have the opportunity to see so many things, revise the canon constantly, love what we like, and nobody else has to like it, you know, as long as a few people like it and buy it. So, mm-hmm. One thing that I think is important about physical media is if you're in a casual conversation with someone about movies, and they ask you, oh, you know, what was that movie where the guy's climbing on Mount Rushmore and people are trying to kill him? <laughs> you can say, oh, that's a great Hitchcock movie with Cary Grant called North by Northwest. You ought to see if you can stream it. 
no, you don't say that because they may not have HBO Max, and then they would have to hunt the movie down. They forgot it was called again. But if you have the disc in your collection, you can give them the disc. They can open up the slip case, see the artwork, and they can take it home with them and watch it. And, you know, you've made a convert. Not that I would ever actually lend out a disc to anyone, but but theoretically, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, no, I, I and on occasion where I really want someone to see something and I'll look up, uh, you know, how much a used copy is on Amazon and I'll just send it to them at that point. Uh-huh. So, so I don't have to deal with opening my Hitchcock box set and finding North by Northwest missing. But, mm-hmm. uh, well, um, yeah, so we, we fully endorse the idea of physical media. We fully endorse the, the labels that put it out, um, especially Kino. I mean, Kino is the label of the year. Not that that's a prize we're giving away here, but there's just been so much stuff from them. And you'll, the audience will hear many of their films mentioned as we, mm-hmm. as we go through our list. But uh, let's go through our list. Let's go through what the top ten physical media in vintage film are. And that's that's the important point. Everybody can have their own particular list. Uh, if you like, you know, trashy Euro horror from the 70s, you can make a list of your top 10, and there'll be more than enough of that that came out this year. But this is old movies. This is creaky old stuff, antiques. We will... This is the best in in that kind of movie this year. And I'll start off with a real eye popper. Daddy, I want a diamond ring, I want some bracelets and everything. Daddy, you better get the best for me. My number 10 is Tex Avery Screwball Classics Volume 1. And this is something that a lot of people have been waiting for a long time. Tex Avery left Warner Brothers, where he was involved in the creation of so many favorite Warner Brothers characters and the general sassy Warner Brothers mood, and went over to MGM, did wild and crazy cartoons there, over-the-top, beautiful Technicolor, because it was MGM, maybe not as nicely animated as the best Disney stuff, but up there. I mean, more nicely Mm -hmm. done than the Warner Brothers work. Um, And this is the first of several volumes that they're going to put out, and we know they're actually going to put more out because they've already announced Volume 2. But Volume 1 is a beauty. It has a mix of cartoons, some some classics like Red Hot Riding Hood, and then some not-so-classics. There's one... I've already forgotten the name, like Country Cousin or something like that, that is just Avery ripping off Red Hot Riding Hood because it was Monday and they needed a script. So we'll just basically damn near reuse one. But anyway, I mean, so it's a mix of his work, but it gives you a real, uh, a nice cross-section of the cartoons that he made for several years at MGM that we've all been waiting for a long time. Uh, Some of us still have our laser disc of of Avery cartoons, but a proper good-looking Blu-ray is something we've been waiting for, and here it is. So, One of my favorite parts of the disc is that it has the three screwball squirrel cartoons on it. The least likable character in in vintage animation history. But the very first one, Screwball Squirrel, has to be one of the funniest cartoons ever made because it just throws every cartoon convention on its ear. The only problem is, is that, as you said, Screwball Squirrel does not have Bugs Bunny's charm, 
And after, by the time of the third cartoon, you're like, I don't like this guy anymore. Right. And Avery but, actually kills him off. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> But we do get Droopy, too. Droopy is also a great Avery creation at MGM. Yeah, Droopy, Droopy is the Zen master of, uh, of cartoons of that time compared to the, you know, the manic uh, insanity and general intolerability of Screwball's Squirrel. I do want to say, though, before we go to the next one, that they, these cartoons look fantastic. Now, it's not a chronological thing where we don't start at the beginning and go on. It's just one or through together the cartoons that they had already restored or in, or in the process of restoring for this, so it's kind of uh, hops around in the Avery canon, but there's a lot of great cartoons on here. It's well worth the purchase. All right, now, number nine, Bruce. Okay, well, my first pick is City Without Jews. It's an Austrian silent film that was released by Flickr Alley in a dual Blu-ray and DVD edition. It's a political silent film about a fictional country called Utopia, where the right-wing political party complains about how the Jewish people are ruining the country and economy. That couldn't happen in real life, though. No, no. But anyway, they pass laws forcing the Jews away from their homes and businesses. And it's remarkable because this film came out a decade before that happened in reality in Germany and Austria. Amazingly, the film gets many things right. Families are forced by soldiers to leave their ancestral home, just like they were in real life. In fact, the film isn't really shocking enough because we don't see much violence and there's no death camps like there were in real life from the Nazis. However, we don't have the whole film because it was really heavily censored when it came out in Austria and Germany in the 1920s. And um, the reason that we have it now is because a partial copy of it was found in a Paris flea market about 10 years ago. It was based on a book by Hutto Bettauer, who was murdered by a Nazi a year after the film came out, and the screenwriter, Ida Jinbach, also died in a death camp. The extras have a pseudo-documentary called Victims of Hatred from 1923, which is about the Jews that fled Russia during the pogroms and settled in Vienna. And there's also a fascinating conversation with Dr. Nicholas Vostri of the Film Archive Austria, talking about the history and the restoration of the film. And what is interesting, we talked about Kickstarters earlier. The Austrian Film Archive didn't have enough funds to restore the film after the copy was found at the Paris flea market. So they did a crowdfunding solution in Europe, and their online backers easily raised enough money for this excellent restoration. And it has a beautiful moving score by pianist Donald Sosen and violinist Alicia Svigals. Which we talked about on the podcast with them. Yes. I mean, it's a really moving score. Yeah, this is uh, this is a really interesting film. I mean, like you say, it doesn't go as far as reality did because it's basically a satire on a politician who sort of cynically uh, exploits the Jewish question uh, for his own benefit. Uh, but it's it's <laughs> fascinating, and you know, gives you chills at things that they wouldn't have seen as so fraught with with uh, peril and terror. The other thing that I think is really interesting about the film is that here's something that was lost for decades and decades, found about 10, 15 years ago. I don't remember exactly what. And here it is for all of us, collectible in physical media form. Um, I don't think it's ever played on any streaming service. You have to shell out a little money to get this thing. But, uh, you know, 
think about how hard it was to get to see films at one time, how they were in archives and, you know, you, you couldn't just go look at them or they weren't going to come play it at a theater, you know, near you in any way. And now you can just get out your credit card and have them in your hand. I mean, this is a perfect example of the accessibility of the access that we have to things that are so obscure. And it's got to be the first time that uh, you've seen an Austrian silent film. I can't think of another important one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But again, it's just because they're not available. Right. All right. Number eight. How's your garden grow, Case? It's like wonderful where you are. Can be. But it hasn't been? Well, I don't call what I've been doing living. And what do you recommend for yourself, Doctor? A holiday. Follow. As long as I need. I've always kind of liked... Uh, the 1938 film of Holiday more than the movie that's the most like it, which is the Philadelphia story, which is same director, a lot of the same cast, same original writer and same screenwriter adapting it in Philip Berry and Donald Ogden Stewart. Uh, I don't know, there's something about the story is just more down to earth to me about Holiday. It's about a guy played by Cary Grant who... He gets in with a rich family, but then his fiancée and especially her crusty old father are not very pleased to learn that he plans to quit his Wall Street job and spend some of the money he's made kind of thinking about figuring out what life is all about. That that just doesn't seem a good thing to them. But it does seem a good thing to his other daughter, played by Katherine Hepburn in the 1938 version, who's more of a nonconformist and sees him as someone breathing fresh life into their stuffy old lives. So what I like about this Criterion set that ostensibly is about the 1938 film is that it also includes this 1930 version of the film. The 1930 version is ve- has very much of a kind of 1920s lost generation mentality to it in which, you know, the heck with money, go, uh, you know, go find yourself is kind of the attitude that it's selling on the part of the main character. That's not the case in the 1938 one. He would seem very irresponsible to go into that too frivolously. So it's interesting to see how the material has changed, and it's also interesting to see how the characters are played differently. I think Mary Astor is more interesting than Doris Nolan as the more conventional sister. I think Anne Harding is way better than Catherine Hepburn as the more nonconformist sister. Uh, partly because she's supposed to be a little neurotic, a little uh, disturbed. And Catherine Hepburn is just way too forceful to make that credible. On the other hand, Cary Grant is much better than the guy who played it in the 30 version. But there's interesting trade-offs between the two. And it's really nice to be able to have the ability to compare those two. And to me, they're equal features on on what makes this disc appealing, even if Criterion naturally uh, builds the one that we all know about. One unfortunate thing, and it's maybe why I didn't rate Holiday a little higher, is that while the 1930 version has really nice uh, source material, the 1938 version is very grainy. Um, I had to sit back as far as I could get from my TV <laughs> to, to watch mm-hmm. it. Uh, Criterion, they fetishize grain maybe a little. But uh, in general, this is a really interesting set that gives you two takes on on a really good uh, piece that was made into movies, and I recommend it. Now, number seven. 
We'll mention the name of Reginald Denny to any film buff, and they'll probably think of the Englishman in so many 1930s films. But during the 1920s, he was a top comedy star at Universal, playing an American character since his accent didn't matter. Kino and Universal have released the Reginald Denny collection that contains three of his prime films from the mid-20s, all with excellent music scores. Each film has a commentary track by Anthony Slide, and surprisingly, he doesn't actually repeat himself very much for each film. The three films are, number one, Skinner's Dress Suit, which stars Denny as a timid husband whose chance of getting a raise at work is absolutely zero, but he can't tell his wife that he didn't get a raise. They go on a glorious spending spree, and it's all fun until the repo men start coming by. It's directed by William A. Sider, who we'll hear from again, who was actually married to LaPlante, and it is one embarrassing situation after another for Denny. This film was restored from two 16-millimeter prints and a partial 35-millimeter print, so the whole film doesn't look pristine, but the restoration is still miles ahead of any 16-millimeter versions that have survived. So have you seen that one? Yeah, that, that's actually the one that I've watched out of those. And yeah, it's very charming. You know, Walter Kerr talked about uh, Denny and another comedian that who got a disc this year from Ben Modell, Douglas McLean, as the Demi Clowns because they yes. weren't flat out clown comedians like Chaplin or Keaton, but they had a nice, easy way with what we call situation comedy now. And the films are are very charming. They're breezy, easy to like. Um, you know, I really, I enjoy that set as well. And I, and I enjoy that we're getting that and so many of these other universal restorations that a studio has actually been paying big money for and Kino has been putting out. The next two look incredible. Um, the first one is What Happened to Jones, and it is the gem of the set. It was directed by Cider and was based on a stage farce. Now, Denny's character doesn't know his future in-laws very well, and his fiance Marion Nixon, is still hotly pursued by a suitor who's played by the prissy William Austin. The night before the wedding, Denny gets roped into a late-night poker game with some friends and his future father-in-law, played by Otis Harlan. The police raid the illegal game, and the rest of the film has Denny and Harlan running from one place to another from the police, and the first place they have to hide is in a ladies' Turkish spa. Of course. <laughs> the rest of the story is a wild ride, and Denny ends up of being the officiating minister at the marriage of his fiance to Austin. So if you only watch one, you got to watch this. Watch it with some friends. It is really funny. All right. And the last film is called The Reckless Age, and it's directed by Harry Pollard. Denny plays an insurance agent who has to make sure that his policyholder gets married to Ruth Dwyer. Of course, he falls in love with her. It's a clever premise, but the script and the director Pollard just don't have enough gags in it, and it's, it turns up into a conventional, I don't know, romance, I guess you could say. But it looks absolutely incredible, having been restored from a 35-millimeter print. I would say my number six is the restoration of the year, the most amazing restoration based on the original material, even though I'm not as wild about the film as some people. It's a two-strip Technicolor horror film, Mystery of the Wax Museum, from Warner Archive. And Scott McQueen, who led the restoration at uh, the UCLA Film and Television Archive, talked about it on Nitreville Radio some months back. We're seeing much 
richer and more varieties of color in that than the analog preservation that was done back in the 80s, which is, uh, again, with simple lab duping and getting to a viewing print going one generation to a negative, one generation to a print, you've picked up a lot of grain and you've lost some of the color. Uh, being able to scan at 4K, that original nitrate, you're able to, again, read into the film much deeper. It's one of two horror films that Warner Brothers did in, in Technicolor around this time, uh, the other one being Dr. X, and they're working on that one. Uh, and because it was Technicolor, so few prints were made that at one time it was thought to be lost. And it turned out that there literally was a private print in Jack Warner's personal vault uh, that he he kept his hands on for whatever reason that and a little material from other prints has been the source of an amazing restoration that brings this you know this weird sort of uh salmon and (laughs) and aqua Mm -hmm. color uh, scheme to life better than i'd ever looked at the time i'm sure technicolor famously had a lot of technical issues with making prints back then and the cleanup on this which scott mcqueen talked about on the podcast here uh is just astounding so it's a pleasure just to have this to look at and it's a pretty good movie not a great movie but a pretty good movie yeah i've um it's at the top of my christmas wish list right now (laughs) can't wait to see it number five well, this year, Kino released one of the greatest adventure films ever made, Bo Jest. You want to stay here and die like rats in a trap, do you? No! Give it up, you scum! Keep shooting! Do you like it? They're breaking! You get a chance, get to die with your boots on! A lot of classic adventure films can seem dated today because of the way that they treat native races in war. But this one still feels very relevant. The only thing that's really corny about the film is that Gary Cooper always seems to hit an enemy soldier with every rifle shot. (laughs) Cooper, Ray Milland, and Robert Preston play three adopted brothers who join the French Foreign Legion to get away from a scandal that one of them caused. Brian Dunleavy is a sadistic sergeant who will do literally anything to his troops if it means he can become an officer. And Dunleavy's character is so brutal that he and the script really push the production code to its limits. The film starts out with a mystery of an outpost in the desert where all of the soldiers are dead under mysterious circumstances, and it immediately hooks you into the story. Director William Wellman really knows how to get tough guys into impossible situations and then get them out in a believable way. The film has an informative and entertaining commentary track by William Wellman Jr. and Frank Thompson. Frank is currently working on a book on the Bo Jest films, so he really knows what he's talking about. They dive into the making of this film and explain why a section is missing due to a later reissue. The disc looks very sharp and sounds terrific, and it also includes a trailer for the film and trailers for other films from Kino. All right, so we've had at least one film this time that people have actually heard of, so <laughs> an actual famous classic. And now on to more obscurity from me. <laughs> for for number four, actually my next two, right, I'm going into a German phase here. I'll start with number four. Kino put out a few German talkies of the pre-war to wartime era This is an area of film that we see very little of. 
understandably, considering that the Nazis were in charge of the studios for part of this period. One of the films they put out, uh, G.W. Papp's Paracelsus, shows a director trying to avoid making overt uh, German propaganda, Nazi propaganda. Um, the other two are made before the Nazis come to power, and they give you an idea of the culture that was in existence and on the verge of disappearing at that point. I really liked a film called Victor and Victoria. You can probably guess what that is the original mm-hmm. of. But I think the one that, that I found the most moving is a film called Machen in Uniform. And it's a film about girls in a authoritarian uh, boarding school. There's an explicit analogy between them and soldiers. Uh, actually, it's the only time we see men in the picture at all. Um, so you get a sense of this sort of rigid German uh, way of, of raising young people. And against that, you have a burgeoning lesbian romance in the film, which will ultimately end somewhat disastrously. It's a really tender film, uh, sort of beautifully made, a little creaky because it's early talky, but uh, a moving film that really gives you a sense of what was just totally at risk and soon to be wiped out in Germany in that time period. So that was, it's a classic that we've kind of been waiting for a long time. I think you know, it was censored in many places. So putting together something close to the original cut was probably difficult, but we have it now and it's highly recommended by me. My next pick is a film that hopefully everybody's already heard of. Buster Keaton's move from an independent production company to Metro-Golden-Mayer has long been the bane of Keaton fans because he lost his creative freedom just like Laurel and Hardy would in the 1940s and his production line movies were frequently painful to watch. However, his first film was still outstanding, and Criterion has released it on a fantastic disc this year. The cameraman introduces us to something new in the Keaton world, a female co-star that isn't just there to cause complications. His character has a crush on her, and Sally, played by Marceline Day, sweetly tries to help him throughout the movie. Buster plays a cameraman who takes tintype souvenir photos for tourists, and he decides to become a newsreel cameraman. Of course, he fabulously fails at first, but keeps on trying throughout the film. I almost want to say it's his masterpiece, but it has to compete with Sherlock Jr. and the General and Steamboat Bill, so I don't know. <laughs> it has, a, has an excellent score composed and conducted by Timothy Brock. On the same disc is his next MGM film, Spite Marriage from 1929. This film had a smaller budget and a tight shooting schedule and isn't nearly as funny. But don't skip watching it because there are two excellent sections in the film. The first is when a lovesick buster is a hasty replacement for an actor in a Civil War stage drama, and he completely ruins the show. The second great section is when Buster brings home his bride, Dorothy Sebastian, after she's married him out of spite and gotten completely drunk, and he tries to put her to bed. This film has the original score used for the film when it was released in 1929 which has original sound effects, and it's a bit overdone. Both films have commentary tracks. The Cameraman by Glenn Mitchell and Spite Marriage has one by John Benson and Jeffrey Vance. The best extra on the disc is So Funny It Hurt, a documentary by Kevin Brownlow about Keaton's time at MGM. It includes scenes from Red Skelton's Watch the Birdie from 1950, which is the remake that Keaton contributed gags for. 
There's also a documentary by Daniel Rame where he follows John Benson and Mark Wanamaker around Hollywood as they tour some sites that Buster Keaton used for filming. And there's an interview with author Jim Nybar about Keaton's experiences with MGM. And finally, a fascinating documentary on movie cameras. Yeah, I really like this set, not least because The Cameraman is a really good film. But I think Spite Marriage is quite good as well. I mean, as good as other Keaton films, maybe not. But nevertheless, it's a, it's very entertaining. It's the least known of his films, really, uh, in that era. So... It's nice to have that. I'm all for discs that come with entire other movies as extras, Mm -hmm. uh, giving you more perspective on what they're up to. Both of the Criterion ones that we're talking about this time uh, have an entire other movie on them, Holiday was was the other one. So, you know, that's that's a good thing. I mean, talk about cramming a lot of value into uh, into a set. All right. With number two, I continue my Germanic phase here. One of the name classics of German silent cinema that we've been waiting for for a long time in a really proper edition is The Golem. This is a kind of medieval fairy tale fantasy thing uh, about a uh, created monster who wreaks havoc. Uh, you can sure tell looking at it that James Whale had seen it when he made Frankenstein. And it's to me, it's maybe the best example of expressionism in film because they built this enormous multi-story fake medieval village that looks like Dr. Seuss designed it. I mean, it's wildly improbable. Yeah, the buildings are like nothing you've ever seen in any other movie or reality. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you want a copy where you can really see that stuff. And I've never felt like I saw versions of it that did those visuals justice. Well, we finally have one. Um, this is a, a beautiful edition from Kino and the Murnau Stiftung. And uh, as I said at the beginning, it's got four different scores between two versions of the film on a disc. Again, I mean, just cramming so much good stuff onto a disc. So uh, if you only kind of know silent film, it's improbable that anyone who fits that description is listening to this podcast. But imagine it were so. Uh, <laughs> this is this is a great uh, first or second or third silent to show somebody it. It you know really rips right along and offers visuals that you wouldn't see anywhere else. So I highly recommend it. It's number two, but there's something even better. Our number one pick that we both agree on is the definitive restorations of Laurel and Hardy from Sprocket Vaults, a, a company that we've never talked about before. These were also done by Sabu Cat and UCLA and the Film Foundation. They've been working on these for several years, and they look and sound incredible. This is a restoration that, like you say, has been in the process so long that we've talked about parts of it three different times on this podcast with different people. So, <laughs> Now, like the Tex Avery films, it's not a chronological set, but it's just a bunch of shorts and two of their best features, Sons of the Desert, which was directed by William A. Sider, who did the Reginald Denny films, and also Way Out West, two of their really funny features, and then a bunch of their sound shorts. Plus, we get The Battle of the Century, which is their silent film that was been lost 
for so long until John Marsalis discovered the second reel. It's the first time this is on video. There's nine hours of material on here. There's at least a dozen shorts. Which one of the shorts is your favorite that's included on this? I love Hogwild, where they're putting the antenna on the roof of the house. I mean, it's just all the all the perfect. You can see it coming, and it still works every time. Gags when, you know, Hardy thinks a window is open, it's closed. Hardy thinks a window is closed, it's open. All those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, that's, that's my favorite. And, you know, these films, you wouldn't think that visual quality was necessary for them. I mean, we've certainly all laughed at them like crazy in inferior versions, but it's such a pleasure seeing them in really crisp, detail-rich new restorations. My favorite short will always be Helpmates. That's where Ollie has to clean up the house after a wild party. And Stan wasn't even invited to the party, but he comes over to, quote, help, unquote. (laughs) And, of course... Not very much. In addition to all of these great films, there's tons of stills and scripts from all of the films. Plus, there's, there's video and audio interviews with people that worked with Law and Hardy that Randy Scredvet's been doing all of his life. Now, except for a few of the films which were new to me, like That's That was a special uh, film they put together just to show at studio parties at the Hal Road studio. I hadn't seen that before, but I'd seen just about everything else on the disc. I'd seen all of these, so I just put them on and watched them with Randy Scrivett's commentary track. And I got to tell you, they are still really funny. And Randy has fun talking about them. He has fascinating information on all of those. For the silent, the Battle of the Century from 1927, Richard Band does the commentary. And his commentary is twice as long as the, is the film because he has so much to tell about the making and the restoration of the film. Yeah, I love that. It's the only commentary I've ever seen keep going after the movie is over. <laughs> There's so much stuff on this disc about the making of the films. You could write your own book. But you don't need to because Randy Scredvet's already written the definitive book on Laurel and Hardy and revised it several times. And the disc has information about that book, too. And I got to say one more thing, too. Another one you really got to revisit is their first mistake, because although they are known as slapstick comedians, this film where Mae Bush is upset with Ollie, so she leaves him and they go adopt a baby so she'll have something to do. It has some of the best dialogue in any Laurel and Hardy movie, and it cracks me up every time. Yeah, I mean, these are just so wonderful. I remember, you know, I showed them a lot to my kids, uh, and I remember one of them saying, why are they so funny? <laughs> you know, it's just, to me, they're the, the gold standard for comedy, um, and worthy of having a proper, you know, proper restorations and and proper uh, disc versions out there. I mean, we talked with Randy Scretvet on the podcast about how close these have come to being the quality material being lost or ruined uh, that's actually happened with some of the silent ones. But, you know, to finally have beautiful restorations of these comedies, it's it's just, it's a treasure. All right. Well, that's all I have to say. You have any parting thought? Well, we can just say something like, we hope you've heard about some discs that you were 50-50. I'm not sure if I want this or not. And there's a lot of great releases out. There's some we didn't talk about because we don't have enough time to talk about 30 disc releases. Though we tried. And we hope that by next year, we're not in quarantine. We're going to movies and movie theaters and movie festivals and all that stuff. 
But still, we'll be watching physical media at home, and we hope that you'll have a few things to watch, too. Well, here's another nice mess you've gotten me into. Well, I'll be seeing you. Where are you going? I'm just going down. Well, you can't leave me here with this child. Why? Why? Why, you're just as much responsible for it as I am. What have I got to do with it? What have you got to do with it? What have you got to do with it? Why, you were the one that wanted me to have a baby. And now that you've gotten me into this trouble, you want to walk out and leave me flat. Well, I don't know anything about babies. Well, you should have thought of that before we got it. Links for our 2020 Top 10 in Physical Media will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Note that the next segment has a few words in it that wouldn't have gotten past the Hayes office. In case you were planning on listening to this podcast with the whole family around the Christmas tree. This year, I've talked to the authors of books about directors like Joe Mankiewicz, composers like Max Steiner, stars like Cary Grant. But one book stood out to me for recreating the Hollywood I'd like to go back in time to visit. A book about writers, in an era when a quick wit and a touch of the con man while pitching a story could make you, well, not a star, but a lot of fun to talk to. The book is Scoundrels and Spitballers, Writers in Hollywood in the 1930s, by the French journalist Philippe Garnier. It's actually an older book, published in France in 1996, under the title Onisois qui Malibu, which is a bad pun, but at least it has the distinction of being F. Scott Fitzgerald's bad pun. The new English edition is thanks to Eddie Muller and his Blackpool Productions. Garnier came to Hollywood in the 1970s, and like Kevin Brownlow looking up silent movie stars in the 60s, he spent that era finding pre-code and pre-war writers and interviewing them while you still could. He introduces you face-to-face with people like W.R. Burnett, author of Little Caesar, John Bright, who co-wrote The Public Enemy, James M. Kane of The Postman Always Rings Twice, Roland Brown, the Orson Welles of the 30s, Robert Tasker, and other members of the San Quentin Literary Society, and John Sanford, a writer always poignantly in the shadow of his childhood pal Nathaniel West. When the time came, he wasn't even important enough to blacklist. I spoke to Garnier from his home in California, and started by asking him how he wound up there as a journalist. Well, um, I never went to school or to a journalist school or anything like that. Uh, I started in uh, in the rock rock press, you know, like, uh, and there was a magazine that was very, very influential in France. It was 
kind of god awful, but it was actually everybody read it, you know, because it was that time and that age group and shit. So uh, they gave me my head, uh, you know, very early on, and I could write about anything I wanted and stuff. And but it, it sounded kind of silly for me to to write about American music uh, from France, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, so uh, I went to the States as early as I could. Uh, they kicked me out, but I came back. So I was in San Francisco uh, in, what, 76 or something like that. Very soon, I got really bored, uh, especially the music became boring and uh, uh, until punk. And uh, so since they, they let me do whatever I wanted, you know, I started doing things on what interested me at that time, which was less the movies than uh, the writers, uh, especially uh, hardball writers. Although uh, I chose to to concentrate on hardball writers and, uh, and noir uh, literature because I could couple that with films, and uh, you know it was kind of a wide audience. Let's say it was not specialized to to uh, literary people. So I started with, you know, the obvious, you know, uh, you, I suppose you, you know about the Serie Noir, you know, the way, sure. the, way the American uh, popular literature was uh, actually distilled, you know, known in France. On one hand, that, you know, the French were aware of that much earlier than, than Americans uh, in the, you know, in the 70s or 80s. Uh, and, but on the other hand, uh, there was a lot of, a lot of mistakes or, or idées reçues, you know, on, uh, on right, on this, these writers, you know, because they were uh, lumped together, you know, like, uh, it's, it was uncanny. I mean, first of all, the, the, the books were butchered. I mean, they, the, <laughs> they were cut, you know, to a certain format, you know. And so when you had the French, you know, uh, adoring uh, Raymond Chandler, The Long Goodbye, you know, they did so uh, in spite of the fact that, you know, the book in front of us uh, was lacking about 100 pages, yeah. which is totally insane when you think of it, but, uh, you know, it's actually true. I mean, it's, uh... So anyway, I started I started that way, and uh, I saw, you know, Chandler, Kane, uh, guys like that and stuff. And um, and then this TV show came on. Uh, you know, there, there was a TV show in France. Uh, it was an hourly, monthly TV show that was all about movies. And uh, I, I was there. The, I was doing the interviews uh, when they came to Hollywood to film. And also, uh, I was instrumental in finding a lot of. A lot of people. I mean, the, the people we actually interviewed. At one point, you know, we had, we had you know, we had no script. We, we we had also very a lot of freedom. So we started doing little documentaries on subjects like writers, like uh, John Fanti or uh, Al Desiades, people like that. My producer said, you know, why not David Goodis? You know, uh, I I never written about him, but uh, it, it made sense because uh, David Goose has always been big in France, much bigger than in this country, you know, at least, you know, uh, up until the 80s. So he filmed me while I was doing this whole uh, 
inquiry about David Goodish's life. You know, he filmed me uh, in Los Angeles uh, and then left me to my own device when I, I went to Philadelphia. And, you know, and then I wrote my first book, you know, about Goodish, but it was less about Goodish than about uh, popular entertainment and popular literature uh, in the 30s and 40s, you know, it was all about pulps and um, paperback culture, you know, that kind of stuff, and and of course the movies. Meanwhile, I I became the correspondent of a big uh, daily, French daily, very influential, called Libération, and again, they let let me write about whatever I wanted. So I was basically a kind of reporter at large, you know, so... Since I had also complete freedom uh, as the subject matter and stuff, you know, I, I wrote long, uh, like, for instance, uh, I published a long interview of uh, W.R. Burnett. I was one of the first guy I did, you know, and, and I got to know this guy. But I still didn't have, I still didn't have this idea of, of writing a book about it. The beginning, I mean, the kernel of it. Uh, started when, I mean, I learned that the biographer of Nathaniel West uh, had, you know, left his notes and interviews, like his tapes and stuff, to the Huntington Library. It doesn't happen very often, you know, that a, a, a biographer has the generosity and the idea of giving all his material, you know, but it was really useful because, uh, you know, at first I, I was interested in Nathaniel West, you know, uh, just, you know, like, a, but, you know, in the interviews, he kept, you know, people kept mentioning all these names that I knew absolutely nothing of, you know, like Robert Dasker and uh, and uh, John Bright and uh, all these, and who, who are these guys? And then, you know, I, I dug a little bit, or, or sometimes they mentioned, you know, your task, or, you know, he had been He'd been writing while he was in San Quentin, and I said, "What?" You know, and then I <laughs> discovered all this kind of a San Quentin school of, of screenwriting. You know, uh, while these guys, you know, were making more money while inside, and then when they were just hung by uh, Menken or whoever, uh, they had a harder time. You know, and made <laughs> much less money, and in in some cases, you know, they had to uh, <laughs> to knock. A, Knock off banks, you know, uh, to, to make up the difference. By the way, all the time that you were helping us, we noticed that various pieces of jewelry disappeared. We have a vague idea where they went. But would you mind telling me one thing? Why were the Count de Marseille's valuables left untouched? Well, sure, he was a Frenchman. Secrets of the French Police, co-written by Robert Tasker. It's not post-scoundrel for nothing. I mean, you know, I... Of course, you know, it only applies to a very, actually a minority of the people I'm writing about. But, but that's what I was, uh, I was interested in. I was interested in these people's lives. I mean, their, their working conditions, the, the, the way they, 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 went, they went to Hollywood or wanted to. I mean, in, in some cases, you know, they never made it to Hollywood. You know, like they wanted to go to Hollywood. Like a... Uh, this is why I have this uh, this little chapter on, on a completely unknown uh, writer of the 30s who actually was kind of a big name in the 30s, uh, uh, Milburn. You know, uh, he 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 was in radio and he really wanted to. You know, and uh, the chapter is what happens to people who you know 
didn't didn't get to make it to Hollywood and uh, and didn't have that as a coach, you know. Uh, and uh, it's not you know the chapter is not is not called uh, the road to calamity for nothing because yeah. in fact <laughs> you know they didn't really make it, you know. Uh, and and I wanted also to go against like, the grain of that stupid uh, idea, uh, idea that uh, Hollywood was the, the, the doom of every writer on earth. You know, I mean, yeah, only a, only a small fraction of people suffered. You know, <laughs> and just because uh, you know she tells the fate or something was kind of romantic and. Uh, striking and all that. I mean, you know, it became the template for for the for the screenwriter of that of the time, which was, was totally wrong. I mean, to, you know, it, it was really a minority. You know, most of these people were like, you know, uh, publicists uh, turned turned right into writers. Uh, they were uh, newspaper men. They were all, and they were very glad of the of the opportunity. You know, and in some cases, even you know, like in the case of uh, Nathaniel West, for instance, you know, it's obvious that it liberated him. I mean, you know, Hollywood did not just give him uh, subject matter for a novel, but it also he he didn't write uh, the Day of the Locust the same way he wrote his other books. You know, I mean, he sort of liberated him in. Because, you know, when he was in Red, at Republic, you know, there, there was a strain of his imagination that he, he actually uh, uh, could completely let loose, you know, uh, and 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 uh, and come up with the most outrageous uh, flights of imagination and satire, you know, uh, because he, he was he was working at Republic, you know, and uh, at Republic, if you know, they they were not exactly particular about the writing and uh, and the yeah. story. You know, <laughs> as long as as long as it was more or less uh, or successful, it, it you know they didn't care. You know, so when he you know uh, when he, he came to write uh, his novel, the result is that we have like a fucking uh, wonderful book. You know, uh, <laughs> which he would not have written uh, had he you know gone to Hollywood. Uh, Sure. So you really started, I mean, not with Nathaniel West, but with people that Nathaniel West had known. That was that was the kernel of it, like uh, finding these notes of uh, Jay Martin. It's funny because actually, very recently, I found I found out that Jay Martin was still around in Los Angeles, the same university as he was when uh, when his bi- his biography was published in 1972. And I was totally amazed that he was still around. And I wrote him a, a note and I said, you know, can I send you the book? And I, I actually explained to him what I just explained to you. And, uh, and I got a note back. And, you know, he really loved the book, which I, I was actually rather uh, apprehensive about it because <laughs> he's a scholar. You know, he's a, right. his, his autobiography was very authoritative and uh you know, it was written in the uh, in style of uh, American books, you know, like uh, with an index and with sources and uh, you know, my book was definitely not in that kind of category. It was more like an entertainment thing, you know. I just wanted people to read, you know, <laughs> to keep reading and uh, then just do something uh, that, you know, definitely was something. I think there's, there's a couple of chapters in the book that are definitive. I think that 
nobody's going to come up with more information on uh, on uh, Ronald Brown, for instance. Right. Because I really went to the bottom of it. But, you know, it's only it's a matter of luck, you know. I mean, who was around? Like, for instance, Kane, I didn't know what to do with that thing because, you know, I, by that by the time I, I got to write the book, uh, you know, Hooper had done his, his biography of Kane and uh, stuff. So, I mean, so what could I do except do it in French, you know, which I, I wasn't really <laughs> interested in that. So, uh, and then I totally got lucky. I was at, uh, at a Western festival, I mean, a film, film festival in Santa Fe, uh, centered on the Western, and you know, I ran into Niven uh, Bush, and I don't know. I said, uh, "Oh, you know, I'm writing about James Kane, you know, and I, you know, since you adapted uh, the Postman, you know, uh, maybe you could tell me a few things." And he said, "Oh, you want to know about Jim? I mean, you know, you came to the right place." <laughs> and then you know. Poof, uh, three hours of interview and then I went to San Francisco to his place and all that. But uh, to my total amazement, Hubel never got to uh, even Bush. Oh, you wow. know? He was not a source of the biography. So it's this kind of method of like, you know, all shooting into corners, you know, into uncovered territory that excited me about it. And this is why it took so long, I mean, to actually develop and, and finding, you know, and finding the form, you know, which is a form that is not, again, you know, I, I didn't want to do anything definite. I didn't want to do something comprehensive. I just wanted to touch up on, to touch on some subject uh, in like, for instance, Kane, you know, what, what, what am I going to do? I think, well, because of uh, of even Bush, you know, uh, okay, well, he's at the Montecito and he's cooking a, a duck dinner. That's it, you know. <laughs> and from there, that was the thing for me. You, you know, that building, uh, which is uh, in Los Angeles and in, in Hollywood, which is just behind Russo Frank, which is behind the bookstore, uh, Samuel's bookstore, this, the Montecito apartment building, you know, I mean, Horace McCoy lived there, uh, wrote a book there. Uh, Kane had two apartments there, you know, he, one for his wife and her children and one for himself. And he was kind of starving. And then he wrote, uh, Postman Always Rings Twice in that place. I wanted to anchor all these stories. I didn't want to, I didn't want to do a kind of a, you know, abstract kind of a, Portrait uh, of of the writer in Hollywood. You know, I didn't want that. I wanted it to be as concrete as possible. So, I mean, there's a lot of places in the book. You know, there's bookstores, there's hotels. There's, uh, yeah, you know, I I just talked to Jeffrey Mantor about Larry Edmonds, and then I read your book, and it filled in so much history about not only Larry Edmonds itself, but why it mattered to the kind of literary community in, in Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I talked to these old uh, booksellers, and like in, in the case of Larry Edmonds, you know, I talked to Le Bovici, you know, who was the founder of the of the bookstore. Uh, um, you know, I, I discovered, I, I was struck by the the passion that, he, that, that writing elicited in, in people, you know, which was a passion that 
was very different from the 50s or 60s or whatever. I mean, uh, it was a matter of life and death in the case of guys like John Fenty, you know, to have a to have a short story in Story Magazine or in, uh, or for busy artists to be in uh, some kind of magazine or whatever. You know, I mean, you know, even in even in Hollywood where you could have said, well, they were all jaded because you know, if they could get a job, at least they would, you know, they would at least earn three hundred three hundred a week, you know, which was a fortune, you know, in the thirties, you know, and 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 but they. They still went at it. They were more pleased to have a, a story in Story Magazine, which paid $25 or 50 <laughs> Because it was, and there was this thing about like, a, almost like it was like, like in boxing is the champ, you know, come, coming up, uh, you know, to defeat the, you know, the big ones like Hemingway or whoever, you know. And, and I was really struck by that and it totally enchanted by that too, you know, I mean, uh, uh, it, it did. It did seem to matter much. Uh, I mean, more than than in the other decades and stuff. So, uh, so the bookstore sort of kind of made sense. Plus, plus, you know, uh, the stories about the bookstore are very different uh, from one bookstore to the other. You know, uh, uh, Larry Edmund is a story in itself, of course. But uh, but the other one, the Hollywood, the Hollywood bookstore. The, and, you know, uh, talking about talking about you know the way Hollywood even like you know uh, helped these guys you know by you know when when you wanted to hire uh, ten thousand books for a scene with uh, right. a, in a in a Clark Gable film, you know all of a sudden it's just like you know a little balloon of oxygen for this guy who's just kind of struggling, you know, like uh, I don't know it was like one cent of one cent a book or something like that. I mean, you know. These stories for me are much more interesting and fun to write about, you know, than some sort of like composite portrait of a, of the typical uh, uh, screenwriter of the time. Because of course this this, uh, this this writer doesn't exist or didn't exist. You know, they were all very different. You know, I mean, the, the conditions didn't vary, but the, the the individuals, you know, and they were really individual at that time. They were like because they came from all all walks of life, you know, uh, as I said, you know, newspaper world or publicity, county people, uh, vaudeville guys, agents. The reading is ended, Mrs. Holman. I can't continue. Please go on. I can tell by your face that you know something you don't want to tell me. But my dear Mrs. Holman, it is of such a a delicate nature. Dr. Monroe, I promised you $500. I'll double that amount if you'll go on. A thousand? The Mind Reader, written by Robert Lord and Wilson Misner. Obviously, there were also a whole bunch of dollars, you know, like turning in, <laughs> turning in pages and pages. You know, I mean, uh, they were not all uh, colorful, obviously. I mean, if you, if you read my book, you say, wow, what a bunch of guys. You know, like, <laughs> uh, because I, I obviously selected them. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, in, in so many ways, 
it was just another hustle and it was guys who had you know like Wilson Misner who had been involved in sort of Florida real estate uh swindles <laughs> and stuff like that yeah. bec- become yeah. writers and as you mentioned Robert Trasker who was literally a bank robber an ex you know a, a con a convict at the time yeah. that he's writing these things um and also just a lot of people who kind of weren't made for the world as it got more corporatized. I mean, Roland Brown is the perfect example, could have been one of the great directors of the 30s, hugely influential on the way that, you know, kind of gangster and tough guy stories and dialogue developed, but had a habit of winding up in a fight with his producer and leaving the movie before it was done. I, I would like to contradict you on one point. Otherwise, yes, I agree. Sure. Well, on one point, uh, I don't think that Robert Brown was influential just for the simple fact that his his movies were not successes and were not largely seen. You know, I mean, okay. you know, when he was at Fox, uh, when he made Quick Millions, uh, his brother said, you know, every director, I mean, you know, like even John Ford or these guys, they were very impressed by it, you know. Uh, and so, yes, in, uh, I mean, in his métier, yes, he was, of course, noticed, but, uh, and also by uh, producers and, and, and studio executives like Danny, for instance, you know. Uh, but, uh, but the thing is, you know, because, because he was kind of ahead of his time, uh, you know, kind of humor, he had the pace of his, uh, of his movies, you know, they were not dramatic. They were like, a, they were like an accumulation of little scenes, you know, delightful little scenes and stuff. And they, they had this kind of really wry humor that is, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I love those movies, but, uh, I've, I've seen him recently. I mean, recently, like a couple of years ago, uh, in the movie theater in Bologna, uh, film festival. So with, with an audience and it was the first time I saw quick million, uh, you know, in a theater with people and all throughout the, 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 the movie, I said, Oh man, I mean, they're going to hate it, you know, cause it's <laughs> so slow. It's, I mean, it's so peculiar. And, and I was no, I, I was paying attention to that because I, I knew the, I knew the film I'd seen them many times, you know? So, uh, and I say, oh God, you know, they, it's, it's, and then you know, uh, the movie was, and people were saying, Jesus, I mean, that was great, you know, blah blah blah. <laughs> and I, I was actually surprised, you know, that they were with it. But I think that you know, probably people from, I mean, now can be with it more than than they could be with it in 1934 or six, you know. Say, did you read in the paper where Whitey Quinn got killed for a stick-up? No. Hey, Rome. No, gas station. That should be a lesson to a guy not to steal. From you. Quick Millions, co-written and directed by Roland Brown. Actually, you know, there's one reason why uh, uh, Zanuck, for instance, uh, wanted to uh, boost up a little bit the, the, the action thing or the sensational thing in the in uh, Blood Money, for instance, when he invented that crazy gag with uh, the, the eight ball that, that explodes or something, you know, right. like uh, that was a complete Zanuck thing, you know, uh, which Brown typically uh, refused to film. Uh, and, you know, somebody else did, but, and, and he was in the film, but so uh, I would, I would say that it was 
you know, I, I don't see any influence uh, at all uh, of Robin Brown in any, anybody's films uh, later on or something, you know. He was his own guy. He was very modern in a way, you know, uh, and uh, very, very original. But, uh, and, and again, you know, as you said, uh, he, he he didn't write, I mean, he didn't make as many movies as he should have, but, you know, the guy was very difficult to work with. Right. You know, yeah. yeah, I wonder if people now are more sympathetic to him because, you know, we've seen Godard, we've seen Tarantino. We know what's going on when a exactly. when a gangster exactly. movie yeah. takes its yeah. sweet time and has its quirky longers and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think Tarantino is the case in point. I mean, he doesn't do it the same way. Uh, Brown did it, first of all. One, because he has more time, you know, to do it, like time, uh, screen time, you know, like you can actually have all these uh, crazy scenes with crazy dialogue, you know, and all that. But, yes, it, it is like, you know, it goes it goes a little bit against uh, um, movie, you know, the usual movie flow, you know, uh, the way of telling a story, you know, like with flashbacks, music and all that shit. I mean, this is like more, you know, but this is also, uh, you know, sign of the times. I mean, there's very little music in the, in films of the period. Right. Like that, you know, uh, which is kind of hard to get to get uh, used to, but once you get used to, you know, you say, Jesus, it was much better without all that fucking music. You know, <laughs> like, you know uh, all MGM put it on everything after, after, uh, after 10 years of that, you know, uh, so, yeah. Well, there's one story in particular that I, I found really interesting. I mean, it's it's a story about a guy who didn't really make it. Um, his name was John Sanford. He was yeah, a, a, yeah, buddy and, Sanford, a buddy and a buddy and rival of Nathaniel West. You know, always came in second to him, except then West died. Married a successful screenwriter. Uh, name uh, was it Marguerite Roberts? Well, did, didn't you think? Didn't you think that that cha- that particular chapter had some sort of like he was all you know? It was almost dramatic. And it is. It is. Way, you know, I could have invented such a uh, such a person in a way. You know, like it would have been a great fiction thing. Yeah. Uh, and I heard of him also just like listening to the tapes of uh, you know like. Uh, Perelman, uh, Perelman talking to Jay, uh, to Jay Martin and stuff, and mentioning uh, Stanford, you know, and and the reason I I got to know, I mean, to meet him and stuff is again that TV show that I was doing, you know, we were doing something on Nathaniel West. We we recreated uh, <clears throat> the, the the car accident he had <laughs> uh, in the middle of the desert and stuff, you know, we. We rented a, a woody uh, car, and uh, you know we sort of like uh, recreated the, the accident. It was kind of a crazy idea, but anyway, so we needed somebody to to tell us about him. And I had this this uh, I remembered that he actually lived in Montecito, so I looked him up. And then you know when he started talking about him, the way he was always measuring himself 
comparing himself to to uh, to West and stuff. And you know the way his wife, you know, would say, you know, you know, Pep wouldn't give you the time of day. You know, like he wouldn't even read your <laughs> books and this and that. All of a sudden, it became you know, it took a life on of itself. But at the at the time, I was just. I was just glad that, you know, I, I got something in the can for the show. That, that, that was it, you know? And, but when I started listening to the tapes, you know, I, it, there was all this, this resentment and this, this uh, suffering almost, you know, that, that would seep through the, 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 the talk, you know? And, but, you know, the fact, the same as, as uh, Robert Brown's brother, you know, I mean, I, you know, at first I said, ah, yeah, jealousy or something, you know, but, but then, you know, when you, you delved into it a little bit, you know, these guys, you know, this guy were not without grandeur, you know, without some sort of, uh, you know, uh, it affected me, you know, like, yeah. uh, and, and I, I like that kind of tension when, when the witness, uh, all of a sudden, you know, takes a life of its, of his own and, and becomes, just about as as important as the subject, you know, yeah. the, the 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 guy he's a witness of. I mean, the guy is <laughs> a source for me and stuff. And it happened in a couple of in a couple of chapters on the in the book, which of course you know the one that I like the most. But uh, but you can't you know it's a matter of luck. You know? I mean, you know, you can't do that. You can't you can't start a book and saying I'm going to do that because you're not going to find it. You know, you're not going to find it in every in every instance. But I had it. I mean, I had it like almost as a coda uh, with W. R. Burnett, whom I saw many times. You know, uh, but you know, I never had a, a, the dimension of the man until he died, and then six months or a year later, his widow asked to see me, and you know, I, I had been introduced to her, but you know, you. She would always leave us in the in, in the kitchen, you know, and we would be gabbing away all afternoon, and she was not part of it. But and you know, so I it was very solemn or something, you know, like uh, I didn't exactly know what was going on, and she was very. Um, I remember because we were not in the kitchen, you know, we were in the living room, and you know, uh, there was this huge portrait of uh, of Bill, you know, like uh, painted uh, in kind of a 30s style and stuff. And, and then she started talking about her husband in, in a way which was, and I think she, she kind of, she kind of sussed out that, that uh, Burnett would not have even thought of telling me about that. You know, his, his life with the dogs, you know, with dog racing uh-huh. and, and the, and you know, going through at least a million dollar in in movie and 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 book revenues, you know, blowing it all up, uh, on gambling and, uh, and which is a recurring uh, theme in the book, to be fair, horse racing and stuff like that. Because you know, I the man I saw was this little shriveled guy, uh, which actually Burnett had been a big guy, but he was like then you know, he was all shriveled and funny and feisty and half blind, you know. Uh, and I would never have uh, that kind of vision of his youth and his uh, glorious, uh, you know, active life, uh, even before Hollywood and after Hollywood, I mean, during Hollywood, if if his wife hadn't 
result of actually, you know, rectifying the, the, the angle a little bit, you know. And and I, and she wanted to talk about the you know his first wife the difference between his first wife and she, and she herself you know, the way she was and you know the 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 house that they they they, they lost because of the big barrier uh, fire and stuff like that and all of a sudden you know the 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 Burnett chapter uh, uh, took took on more life than it had like when it was just doing our pose body and stuff like that. Uh, next week, I'm going to give it a party which the boys have never seen only like it before. Could have a much more music, a much more girls, a much more everything. Everybody should say, ah, oh, Big Louie. <laughs> He's sitting on top of the world, eh? Scarface. Dialogue by W.R. Burnett. Yeah, did you find that these guys had a tendency to uh, print the legend, to, you know, tell you... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. Oh yes, and but but the thing is, you know, I mean, I had a shit detector, very very acute shit detector, because I'd written, uh, I'd uh, I'd write all the all those Hollywood books, you know, either uh, uh, writing on Hollywood or else, you know, uh, autobiographies or all that. I mean, uh, it was really I, I would meet people who had wonderful anecdotes and wonderful lives and stuff like that, and I couldn't understand why they would just recycle all these hackneyed stories. You know, they were basically living room stories. I mean, uh, sure. salon stories, you know, they, 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 that had actually no basis in uh, in reality or something, but they they kind of like, they, they'd rather repeat these kind of uh, worn-up, you know, uh, anecdotes than, than actually telling me the, the 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 real story that happened to them, you know, which were much more interesting and, and funny, you know. Uh, I could and could never understand that. But I mean they all almost all did it. I mean, you know, even even a guy like Neven Bush, although, you know, he was really uh, very trustworthy. I you know, there were there were people who tell, were telling me things and then I would go into the paper trace and stuff and I, I would find them. I would find out that they, they were taking liberties with truth or, you know, and, and I was never, I was never, I would never put down uh, my my guys, you know, for, for doing so because I actually found out later on in my life, you know, that my memory, you know, is not trustworthy, you know. Uh, and so it's good to have all those stories, and then it's also good to to do the very painful work uh, <laughs> of actually verifying as much as you can. You know, I mean, as much as you uh, because the, the, this is an industry town, so it has industrial uh, archives. You know, uh, and so you can actually go back and, and, you know, and say, oh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, he was not the only writer on this. He was the third or the seventh. Or yeah. <laughs> but they never knew. But they never knew because little fucking producers would never tell them, sure. you know? Like a Jerry Wall guy, you know, he, he would he would talk, he would just, like, uh, buttonhole uh, anybody in the corridor and say, well, did you have an IP for this? Maybe it was the greatest contribution to the film. But the guy had just said that between the water uh, tower, <laughs> I mean, the water thing and the coffee yard, and, uh, you know, I forgot about it and stuff. And, and so that's the way movies were made, you know? I mean, so, uh, I don't know. It's, 
but I, again, I insist on I wanted I wanted to be lively. I, I wanted to to have a, a sense. Well, you know, you, the first thing you said, you know, uh, it's like this kind of sense of the sense of place and time, you know, uh, uh, and and you know, this this in the seventies, Hollywood was god awful place, you know. It was like you know, male prostitutes. And, uh, right. <laughs> well, it was a kind of a zoo, but. It was not the zoo it is now, you know, with all the the, bus, the tourist buses and this and that, and and the uh, and the gentrification hadn't started, so it was kind of a, a dump. But it was a ghost town in a sense that you could see the past, you know, way past the uh, the, the, the the plastic forms of the on on the stores, you know, of the sixties and seventies and stuff. You know, you 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 could feel the marble behind it. You know, like uh, and the Art Deco facades and stuff, which had been sort of like boarded up in plastic and stuff. And I, I actually found the, the, the found the place completely fascinating. You know, because uh, you you know there was still ah, this little hotel, you know, where Menken sent his uh, paramour. Oh, it's still there, and uh, oh, that that hotel where Stanley Rose, you know, finished his days, you know, which turned out to be the hotel of. Uh, the Julia Roberts fucking film and stuff, you know. I mean, yeah. like, uh, you know, it had it, it had a life for me. You know, I could I could actually see myself in there. You know, like uh, I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I honestly couldn't endure going to Hollywood today. Uh, <laughs> it's just too much. It's just too much. I mean, it's the uh, uh, it's like it's like trying to find any any kind of uh, soul in uh, Times Square uh, in New York. You know, there's none. You know, 42nd Street. You know. But I was lucky enough to, to come to this country, like in the 70s, where uh, there were a few traces of, the, of this world. You know, that I actually like. You know. Scoundrels and Spitballers, Writers in Hollywood in the 1930s, is available only directly from Blackpool Productions. I'll have a link in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Bruce Calvert and Philippe Garnier, and to Daryl Sparks at Blackpool Productions. Music is by Kevin McLeod. This is the last episode for 2020, but I'll be back after the new year which I hope will mark the beginning of a better year for us all. Talk to you then.